Welcome to the 31st episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about internet privacy, both for work and for home. These are more linked than you think they are. If you know how to secure the one, you pretty much understand the implications for the other. And being able to know what you're sharing, how you're sharing it, what other people can see about what you're doing, means that both for your personal stuff and for your customer's sake, you have a better control over a lot of important factors of of the space. So uh, one of the hot topic items in the news right now as we're recording is the uh, House bill to roll back the FCC provisions that w- that haven't gone into effect yet. They were going to go in in effect in December of 2017 um, that was specifically targeting ISPs to have to force you to opt in uh, to allow them to uh, quote-unquote sell your data. Now, Reddit and a few other sites really went to the extreme with this. I think even some of the people like... Uh, I think was it Cards Against Humanity or whatever, like some people were saying they're going to buy up all the senator's history and expose it to the world. And and while that does sound awesome and it would be really great to do that, um, that just isn't how it works to begin with. And then depending on your political spectrum, uh, some people felt that that was a duplication of the FTC's efforts, which already requires... Uh, them to disclose if they are selling your data, um, and the and there is provisions about around what they can sell. So currently, what they can only sell is anonymized versions of groups of people's data. They can't actually say like Jared Watkins went to Reddit on this time. This is what he did. They just can't do that. That's even today they can't do that. Which brought into a lot of talk about VPNs and whether people should start using those heavily or not. I I don't know what your guys' opinion on on that is, uh, but I I just think that moves the issue to another choke point. Honestly, I mean, tinfoil hat time, that's almost what (laughs) people like, especially the NSA, would love because then there's less uh, points they have to check because then it's like this one exit node has all the data that they need. Well, for me, the thing that the Senate stuff brought up was reinforcing that your ISP does watch everything you do because it's their pipe. And that's perfectly valid. That's part of the things that they've been doing for years and years and years. But when you go into a an incognito mode or a private browsing tab and you have that warning that says, this protects your computer's local history, it does not you know, protect you from somebody at work watching what you're doing or an ISP watching what you're doing or a government, it it highlights how that is a false sense of security that a lot of people have. And something like a VPN can help redirect or misdirect that traffic. So if you are a, a dissident in a country that has repressive speech laws, you can use a VPN, for example, to move your traffic somewhere else so your ISP can't see what you're doing. And in that sense, it's good. But I do agree that the whole the House bill was was blown up politically in kind of bizarre ways. And yeah, your ISP doesn't actually have the ability to sell what sites you went to visit. They 
do know what sites you're going to visit. So when you are configuring VPNs or other things, you should be aware of a number of other technical issues. Jack, what do you think? That was the point that always got under my skin going through this entire, uh, what do you call a discussion with the entire United States of America? Um, but in most cases in the media, when they would report on this topic, they really didn't make it clear that it's your ISP and they do have that capability to log exactly what you're doing and know exactly what bank accounts or at least what banks that uh, our buddy Jared here uses on a day-to-day basis. Um, and a lot of the um, opposition um, or the folks in favor, I guess, were quoting that you know other companies um, also have the ability to uh, anonymize and sell uh, information like this as well. But the media didn't really make a clear difference between your ISP that holds the other end of your pipe that knows all of your data versus the shopping experience you have with Amazon, um, Amazon can track what you look at and target ads to you based on that, but they don't have every bit that comes out of your computer the way your ISP does. Um, it's it's a difference between the phone company being able to listen to all of your phone calls versus a tech support firm recording your phone call for educational purposes in the future. Mm, and I think that's this, really been missing. It's almost uh, as if Title II is actually important. Hmm. <laughs> the other thing it brought up to Jared, I like that you highlighted, is that your VPN is only a means to an end. And if you've misconfigured a VPN or you've chosen poorly which VPN provider you're using, you may still be leaking DNS requests all over the place. You may be coming out of an exit node that the FBI is watching or other other handy things. So before you scramble onto, let's just use a VPN to protect our privacy, know what you're getting into, do some research, do some reading about the kinds of VPNs, why you need a VPN, what it's doing, and then take a look at something like Tor instead, because it it may be a better solution for your privacy needs. And realize that if you're concerned about your ISP, uh, they're still going to be able to figure out that you're sending a lot of traffic toward a particular VPN endpoint. They may not be able to to decrypt the traffic, but they know you're using it. Yeah, and, and to the Tor point, uh, it's rumored that quite a few are actually ran by the FBI NSA directly just for them to be able to collect, uh, you know, a honeypot, as you will. Uh, some of it for legit purposes. I mean, you know, I think we all know that Tor is is used for very nefarious purposes. Um, and so the FBI does run some, some exit nodes to try and capture that. Um, so if you are going to get into tour, you, you definitely want to know who's running your exit node. Uh, maybe even possibly have a personal relationship if possible, just so that you can understand what the node is, how they're, how they have it configured. Is there any logging? You know, there's just, there's a couple of, of key questions there. Well, Jared, hey, I support the government. Are... I would like to use the VPNs that are run by the FBI. <laughs> Pay them my $10 a month. So I Jared, trust them, right? Jared, in case folks don't know what Tor actually is, can you give a quick summary? Oh, man, I don't know if I'm the best person. Basically, Tor, isn't it like uh, it's almost like a distributed VPN almost where it, it you connect to different endpoints that then bring join the packets back together. Um with the whole thought process of 
some bits go over here, some bits go over there, and it's harder to to reconstruct. It's almost like paper shredding your your data in transit, uh, but it still gets joined somewhere else, and that is where the where the Tor exit node comes into play, and that's why it's very important to trust or have a relationship with that operator because uh, that is where the uh, the, the state actors concentrate their efforts because that's where where you can get all of that data. Also, you should be trying to understand as you're making all of these these various privacy decisions what you're trying to avoid. If you're if you're living in a very say conservative area and you don't want other people to know what your web browsing habits are, for example. Just running a private browsing mode session may be enough. Um, if you're trying to evade a government, you probably are outside of the scope of this podcast and you have bigger problems. If you really are a dissident and you're, you're trying to publish information or other things, the governments have effectively unlimited funds and unlimited CPU resources to to find you and to to unmask you. So be extraordinarily careful. Yeah, I, I guess I should try and and <laughs> I guess it's real easy for me to go. Well, that's just whatever because it's not perfectly secure. If you're obviously trying to get past your ISP, um, being able to observe because I was real tempted when this first broke. I was like, oh man, I'm gonna have to get like a Linode or a, a DigitalOcean node and just VPN to it because I know that because my whole thing was to not allow my ISP to data mine what we go to. Um, just because I'm preparing for most likely uh, net neutrality to go away and for s- sites to start being uh, you know, packaged, so to speak. So I really didn't want to give my ISP that information, which they probably already have anyway. But in, in regardless, I was going to set up like a DigitalOcean or a Linode box uh, that would be my VPN endpoint. And then from my house to there would be encrypted and all the ISP would see would just be 100% encrypted traffic to this specific IS, uh, IP and then whoever Linode or DigitalOcean has as an ISP, then it would, it would you know, go out there. So if yeah. you're trying to get away from your ISP, that's perfect. Yeah. I have some friends who download movies um, in ways that may not be entirely legal. And one of them has found a, a VPN service that allows him to stream BitTorrent traffic at full speed. And the exit point I believe is in Canada so he avoids all of the copyright law because Canada has um, they have a tax that they charge on recording media for like CDRs and stuff to cover the losses the recording industry faces from piracy. So it's sort of ish legal in Canada, um, at least to the point where folks don't crack down on it as much. And I don't condone this. This is not a, a legal thing or something that you should be doing, but that's an example of a specific case of trying to get around a specific set of ISP level privacy issues. Um, Cause if you run BitTorrent at your house, obviously and download illegal movies, you are going to get letters from first your ISP and then later from lawyers telling you that you're going to court. So I'm not condoning any of this, of course, but that's one of the reasons that some people choose to use VPNs. So, Jared, what do you use to pay for your VPN, Bitcoin or altcoin? <laughs> well, I, I actually don't run a VPN uh, because, one, I don't do that illegal stuff. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, and I, uh, 
honestly, this podcast just... is not a way to keep your good reputation. <laughs> and I, and and I'll have to be. I'm 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 on to just admit something. Bitcoin. I just haven't 100 percent grasped it yet. I just you know I mean I under I sort of understand it. You know, there's this wallet, yada yada yada, and you can mine. You know, I guess maybe if I'd gotten into it earlier on and actually had mined and gotten some coins, I might have would have paid more attention to it. But by the I time I got, I got into it earlier, yeah, but I, I mean, never really you know, have. By the time I got into it, all the ASICs were basically useless because everything was that, that was really easy was already found. Um, and so honestly, I don't really do any of those coins. I did a small amount of mining back when Bitcoin was, I want to say, 80 bucks a coin, 90 bucks a coin. And I made enough to pay for the miner twice. And if I had been smart, I would have just sat on the coins or on the the money that I had in Bitcoin. Um, but I frittered it away on other useless things. And so, of course, I have none of it now. And now that Bitcoin's $1,000 a coin, I wish I had held on to it. Um, but that's living and learning. <laughs> ah, investing. Yeah. Moving right along, um, there's a number of ways to have communications kept secure, even if you don't try to secure your entire internet experience. Um, it's been proven that SMS is trivially hackable. It's easy to set up nodes um, either as a rogue agent in the field. It's not with, only clear text, but trivially foolable, yeah. Yeah, I mean, $1,000 worth of hardware, and you can be out in... You can go into a city and you can set up a rogue um, 3G um, cell that forwards calls along that people assume is a valid station and then start using it. Or you can be a government, you can buy what a Stingray or whatever they're called and yeah, do the same stingray. kind of things. So if you're looking for secure communications, especially, again, if you're, if you're living in a, the part of the world where you have issues trusting government control of media because you're trying to get politically sensitive messages out. Um, think about Egypt during the Arab Spring. There is a plethora of chat protocols and other apps you can use on your mobile devices that offer fairly decent security and privacy, both. Um, Signal by Open Whisper Systems is one of the better well-known ones. Have either of you used it before? I've used Signal a little bit. It's really quite easy to use um, for folks that have been looking for group-based messaging um, that doesn't really work well with uh, iPhones, iMessage, or, of course, SMS. Um, But even the group messaging is really pretty easy to use. Um, The encryption is strong AES encryption, and it's the UI is really well designed to keep that, um, keep the details of the encryption out of view of the casual user. So it's really an easy messaging app to use. So I've been uh, really impressed. Um, I know a lot of folks in the media journalism uh, fields actively use Signal um, to do their communication before, their, before they release stuff uh, in print. Yeah, I was waiting on them to release an app for like the desktops, Mac or Linux or whatever. And I think they've they either have a Chrome have... extension. Well, yeah, they have a Chrome extension, but... I, I like native, um, yeah, but I luck. think they actually are releasing a native. Either they have or they're getting ready to release native ones. So I'll probably start playing with it then once that comes about. Yeah, my incurses based uh, IRC app that plugs into Signal. Because everything plugs into IRC for Jack. That's just the way of the world. 
Everything worked better back then, when all traffic was easily transparently readable. So both of you have mentioned something as we've we've gone through this. Um, with social media stuff, like either Facebook or Google or Twitter or a number of other of the large web properties, install tracking cookies into your browser so they can then watch other sites that you visit and they can have their ad networks better find and tune and hone the the advertising experience for you, as they like to call it. Um, you know, ISPs are prohibited from selling this, but Google isn't. And Google basically has presence all over the internet with their ad network. So anytime you go to a site that has a Google ad embedded in it, they generally know who you are down to the user ID, and then they can amalgamate that and anonymize, obviously. But they can say, okay, we're looking for a white middle-aged American man who has children and enjoys chess. Exactly. And then they can, (laughs) they can sell that and say to an advertiser who is making chess sets, you want to send an ad to 10,000 random people or to a thousand people that actually might care about your ad. And this is kind of good because you get relevant ads. You get ads that actually you might, be interested in clicking on. But it also means that these huge corporations have these incredibly intricate databases and information stores about exactly who you are, what you like, what you don't like. And it borders on the level of creepy. So there's a number of ways that you can help to sanitize your web browsing experience and not provide quite as much information to other people. Yeah, I know a lot of people who love to run no script for that purpose. And also, um, one thing that Safari does out of the box that Chrome obviously does not, which is restrict cookies to um, the 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 currents or the the only sites that you visit, and does not allow like third party uh, cookies, because um, those are those are really easy, uh, or where where a lot of tracking can come from. Um, but I. Uh, you know, a lot of people love to run no scripts so that you can't run JavaScript that way, or you can control which JavaScripts get ran. And obviously, a lot of people like to block the Google Analytics trackers or the other uh, JavaScript analytics trackers that are out there, um, just to try and to limit that that leak. I believe Google also has some opt out uh, options as well, though I don't recall exactly where they are. Yeah, it's real deep. I think you got to like go to your account and look at, you know, they actually, they, they will show you what they know about you. Like if you go into your account somewhere, uh, it will show you like, we think you are interested in these things. Um, and it's really think- one of the things that, that makes me trust Google a slight smidge more than, than the average uh, advertiser company, because they will actually uh, give you that information and let you opt out and allow you to set your settings. Oh, if, I trust Google I far choose... more than I trust Facebook or any of the others because Google <laughs> understands that part of what their product is is informed consent, and so they don't want the reputation of being a creepy company, whereas Facebook just doesn't seem to care because they know what they're getting hmm. from people, and they know that people are addicted to the dopamine hit of refreshing their newsfeed, and they keep on moving other privacy settings around and opting you back into things by accident or not by accident. So yeah, I, I give I give um, Google the benefit of the doubt, and I give Facebook the not benefit of the doubt. I, I assume malice there whenever they make a change until I until it's been proven otherwise. 
Yeah, that's what I was actually about to say, that I, I trust Google far more than Facebook or, or any of the social media sites, just because it's it's it really is in Google's best interest to try and not, for them themselves to understand you the best, but then not to release all that data to other people, because then they can't make the money that they make. So I I don't like it, and I... I that's reason one of the reasons why I do actually favor Apple and a lot of the stuff they're trying to do, where they're trying to do things like on device versus uh, in mass, and and there's some pros and cons to their approach versus Google's approach, and and it does show in some of the services that that Google does, but uh, overall, I would trust Google over any other company that does that kind of stuff. Now, the less. Um reputable people even less reputable than than facebook or linkedin or the others the, who who do the craziness um there's a bunch of malicious ways you can use cookies and flash and javascript to set what's called a super cookie which allows even through browser cache clearing and other kinds of restarts to persistently track users across sessions and restarts and all kinds of stuff and there's a whole army of people working on ways to track and another army of people working on ways to defeat the tracking. Um, I'll include some of the links in the show notes, but there is a browser fingerprint project that will tell you how unique you are just based on publicly available aspects about your browser. You know, what version you're running, what extensions are installed, what cookies it's able to read, those kinds of things. And what your resolution is. Yeah, and it'll tell you how unique you are as compared to the rest of the internet. And it's kind of shocking when you run it to see that, no, you're really like one of a thousand people. And considering there's billions of people in the internet, that's that's kind of scary. Um, and then the super cookie stuff where they can they can set cookies, where they can store bits of information on your computer and then know who you are later, troubles me to no end because they could store just a unique identifier. Or they can store all kinds of other things. And you have no visibility into this and it's really hard to get rid of yeah and i i really think that's where while i was mentioning like obviously safari is gonna be a little better on that in, in terms of trying to fight allowing which domains have access to your cookies and that kind of thing and whether you've actually visited the site or is it a a script attempting to load it or whatever um and i really think that's where chrome will always lag behind because google has a perverse incentive there to allow you to try and let them monitor you better than other browsers would necessarily want you to. So how does all of this translate over to the work environment? We've been talking almost exclusively about the things we do to protect our privacy when we are the individual using the internet. When we're providing a service to a user, how do we go about protecting privacy both of the user and of our, of our data? Uh, bcrypt. <laughs> um, if you're doing anything, don't answer email. <laughs> if yeah, if you're if you're doing anything other than bcrypt for user password hashes, then you could just you can just go ahead and stop. Um, if if I get an email, um, I use like one password, you know, password manager to generate random passwords for every website. If I, if I get an email with my password in it, uh, you're getting a you're getting a letter from me going, this is just this is wrong. Um. So what about those yeah, mailman still... lists that by default every month email you your password in, in plain text? <laughs> yeah, I've gotten a couple of those already this week. I mean, those Is... are, I, I don't know. I mean, that, I mean, well, I mean, that, that almost, that almost though, 
I treat email as as it's uh, people. Everybody can see it. I mean, it's just there's there's no ex- there should be no expectation of privacy there unless you wrap it in PGP, which nobody does. Which nobody does because it's a hassle. Because it's PGP, yeah. So one of the um, one of the things that you can do as a as running your your site or running your the service for customers is something called perfect forward secrecy or just forward secrecy, which prevents a compromised private key from exposing um, secrets in the future of that key from being exposed by having a constantly rotating sub key. So you don't have to worry about if, if the NSA were to break in and grab your private key today, it doesn't decrypt messages that were sent tomorrow. So it allows users going forward from a breach to have confidence that messages after that point weren't also decrypted by the same key. Um, the text from Wikipedia is, forward secrecy protects past sessions against future compromises of secret keys or passwords. If forward secrecy is used, encrypted communications and sessions recorded in the past cannot be retrieved or decrypted should long-term secret keys or passwords be compromised in the future, even if the adversary actively interfered. Um, I think Twitter was one of the first people to actually use forward secrecy in their communications because they were doing a lot of nice things about um, folks resisting government stuff and trying to get communications out. And they were being very sensitive to that. And they've helped drive those standards forward, which is really good. But it also brings me to another kind of essential point of the SSL keys you have, rotate them. Rotate them as, as often as your infrastructure will allow you to do that because it keeps a compromised key in in the prime slot for a shorter period of time. Yeah, and that's that, always been the biggest problem with SSL. It's such a freaking pain in the ass to rotate your SSL keys, get it new keys signed, verify who you are. Uh, and that's where the Let's Encrypt folks have really stepped up to actually make an API that makes real, honest SSL keys available via an API that are short-lived and you can easily rotate them. So that that definitely plays toward uh, both goals there really easily. Yeah, and I, I really think that's the future. I, I, I think it's even going to be more, it's going to go farther than that. Uh, you know, there's that vault by HashiCorp, which is a, a secret store and has an API that it's really focused on short-lived um key passwords and and keys and everything it's really meant for like the docker era so like when your container starts up it will make an api or your app starts up in a docker container it makes an api call it retrieves a a a key for that session and then it will either expire within a short amount of time or uh it will only live until the until the app dies um i i'm hoping that leps encrypt is paving the way towards a future where basically when your web server starts up that it will make an API call and get a, a valid SSL cert from a certificate authority and then run with it uh, instead of doing what we all do, which is to remove the passcode on your private key and dump it on a box and it sits there for one to three years. Usually, you know, star.example.com. Exactly. Unless you're using a semantic cert. Um Google just announced that due to misuse of their key signing privileges that Chrome is going to stop honoring semantics issued certificates the same way as they honor everybody else's. And one of the the most harmful things or one of the biggest things that changes they're making is they're going to 
internally restrict the validity of the key in terms of duration. So they're going to be expiring semantic certs before the semantic cert actually expires. Um, semantic was caught once again, allowing either through negligence or, or through malice, lots of falsely validated keys out the door. And so Google says, we just basically can't trust that you're doing things correctly as a certificate signing authority. So we're going to stop trusting you in general. Um, this has a and huge we've impact. Already mentioned, we've already mentioned it before, but this is one of those things where you need to trust the certificate authority that you use. Um, the cheapest option usually isn't the best. The cheapest option is usually cheap for a reason. Um, tactics that semantic is used either purposely or not are not uncommon, frankly. Yeah, but I, so I think... I think the price thing is going to go away soon. You already have uh, Let's Encrypt, which is completely free, and it's in it's in 99% of the browsers or whatever their coverage rate is. You have AWS, and I'm I think Google, right? Um, you know their their Google platform now allows you to have free SSL search for certain services on AWS. Services. The, it's the load balancer and uh, uh, Cloudflare, uh, CloudFront. Well, Cloudflare will um, also do SSL certificates for you, and they've demonstrated that they have fairly deep knowledge in how SSL works, even if they've done some overreach by providing keys for any site that's under their their domain instead of ones that have been requested. Um, they have they, they've demonstrated some some chops there. Yes, yeah, the, the, them and and even like some of the app providers like Heroku, I think they just recently announced that it's that their SSL is free now. So I think we're getting to the point to where uh, it no longer are the days that an SSL cert will cost you a thousand bucks or, or you know some outlandish number, uh, especially when it comes to like wildcard certs or things like that. Um, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. But yeah, those folks have to make their uh, cash somewhere. So outside of SSL, what can we do to protect our users? Actually, just for SSL, I, I think it's important to touch on that you cannot stop at the load balancer or when when the uh, packets, so to speak, first come into your network infrastructure. I think you have to do end-to-end -end encryption. Now, it's fine for from your load balancer to your app servers or whatever for it to be a self-signed or self-certificates. Uh, uh, it doesn't have to be something from a, a valid... Uh, CA just because you yourself are validating those and you can as obviously long as you yourself that. can validate them. Well, yes, hopefully you will validate it and not just blindly accept it. Um, and then have a process again for like when servers get provisioned that they get distributed a key and there's a there's a key signing method there and and all that kind of stuff. But I think it's important to do that. I mean, Google when it came out that the NSA was sniffing on the trunks between their data centers. I mean, it, I think within what uh, it was in 24, 48 hours, they completely encrypted all of their traffic that was inner inner data center traffic. Um, and I, I think we're at that level nowadays that you really need to do that, not just to protect you from state actors, but I mean, it, especially with the advent of the cloud, it, it could be real, especially I know for the fact Linode and DigitalOcean, the quote unquote private networks that you can get between VPSs is no way uh, secure or only for you. It's 
it is a shared network, so other uh, VPSs could sniff that traffic if it's not encrypted. There's so also been a number important. of there's been a number of security related breaches to the hypervisors that Amazon has used, where they say, "Oh, well, there's a memory exploit where you can get you can break out of your your sandbox into somebody else's." Um, that's not just into network. That's, in, that's sometimes been into shared memory and other kind of scary things. And Amazon usually patches very quickly and kind of painfully for them. But yeah, all of these things you need to take into account that the more layers you can add, the better it is for you. And I think offering a two-factor, a uh, 2FA option for your service is something that needs to be done nowadays. Yeah, if you're uh, running a public service and you do have a multi-factor authentication option, that's at least available, if not required, um, I'm inclined not to do business with you. Banks, hello? SMS doesn't count. Yeah, and there's a number, as we discussed in the last episode, there's a number of well-supported, fairly secure, reasonable-to-use 2FA solutions out there at this point. So find one that you like that your developers can integrate with nicely and go with it because it makes your customers happier to do business. It's pretty easy. It's easy for the customer. The libraries for uh, those of us that write the code is already there. Um, There's just standards to apply to. So the last thing... Yeah, so my bank still has case-insensitive passwords. So I'm not mad. So the the final bit of advice that I have is for, for protecting your users' privacy is don't keep the data. Store whatever data you have for as short a period of po- time as possible. So if you do get breached, if some hacker does break into your network and they're looking for a customer from five years ago's home mailing address, well, if you don't need it, throw it away. Get rid of it. It it exposes you to a smaller legal footprint, and it means that the attack surface is much smaller. So don't keep logs forever. Don't keep backups forever. Don't keep old contact information forever. It may, it may make the sales guys upset with you, but find ways to minimize what you retain or at least anonymize what you have, so when there is an issue, you haven't exposed your users quite as badly. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm I lo- I love Stripe for credit card processing just because it's an API call and they deal with the storage. If you do like a recurring charge option or whatever, they keep the card number, the all that stuff, and they secure it. And all you have to do, all you have, is an ID that's associated with that information. Yeah, if you're, unless you're in the business of of dealing with payments, then don't deal with payments. Use a provider. Don't deal with having to, uh, uh, oh, PCI compliance. PCI is hard. Checkbox security. And it's expensive. And if you get it wrong, the penalties are extraordinarily severe. Um, It's kind of like the HIPAA violations. If if you get that wrong, you may as well just pack up shop because you've... You've cost your company so much money at that point. And it will affect the security and the regulations surrounding the security of every machine you run. And and HIPAA will cost you more than PCI. You... Oh, yes. HIPAA, <laughs> HIPAA will, will, will drown you. Will bankrupt you, yeah. Um, very, very rapidly. But if you don't have to run payment, like Jack said, don't. Just, just don't. Don't do it. Um, there are... I'm more inclined to do business with you if you partner with a trusted PayPal provider. And I'm not actually a huge fan of PayPal, but yeah, there, there's a couple of very slick, well done. Man, did I say PayPal? You did. 
Um, oh man, there's a couple of very slick, well-run payment providers online that you can use that take a very, very small fraction of the transaction as payment, and they make it all just work. It's worth using them instead of trying to do it yourself. Anything else, guys? Um, this isn't really directly related to if you run a service. I guess this is more if you're in the IT section, but I, I think training your users on how to avoid uh, phishing or uh, spam, uh, uh, click hijacking, is probably the number one reason for data breaches in companies today. Or at least getting ransomware and that kind of junk installed on your your machine. Um, so just edu- educating your users on, you know, the prince of Algeria will not be asking you for for this information or her whatever. Or you know, worse yet, you're you know, we will never. And 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 it also comes to you as as the service provider or IT person to never ask for someone's password, so that you can definitively say, we will never ask you for a password because we can just reset it and. You know, we will never ask you for that, and th- and that will hopefully stop a lot of that from ever starting. One of the basic uh, tenets that I want more people to follow, I would like all of my clients to follow, install security updates. If you're running servers, long-lived servers, have a policy to make sure that security updates are installed regularly. If you are doing Docker images or or similar containers, have things set up so when you deploy new containers, they come up with the top-level security patches and redeploy on a regular basis. I am so disappointed in the number of companies that I've seen that actually regularly apply security updates in an automated fashion. Um, Of the folks I've worked with, there are two companies... Um, that actually have policies and procedures for regularly supplying uh, security updates to their long-lived instances. Um, the, the policy that's can horrible. be as much as we apply updates every three months on a quarterly schedule during a, a downtime window. But at least have a policy and do it, and don't let boxes run for 10 years without ever looking at them. Because that's really just asking for somebody to find a way in and find your user's data. And understand what the latest tag does with Docker. Uh, Hint, it doesn't always mean the latest. (laughs) So it's best to probably just use version tags. A A lot of what I see is that people rebuild Docker images with the same base. So they might update their application code, but it's the same... Uh, OS base or whatever is forming the base of the Docker image. Well, I mean, which is where have... your security. Uh, uh, it's where you're, you need to worry about your security. Right. So if they have like Ubuntu latest in their base image and on their machine they have a latest tag, it's not going to go out and refresh that image until you delete that image or you intentionally do a pull on that image name. Um, oh yes, Docker. So. You know, if you have a latest that's two months old, that latest will still be two months old. It won't actually go out and get the latest. Please take the time to rate the show on iTunes. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave a comment on the website at 
http colon slash slash operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email at feedback at operations.fm or use operations.fm on Twitter. That wraps it up for the 31st episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. We have been Brendan Diesendorf, Jack Neely, and I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks and good night.